Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations this week, all focusing on the Journal of Hepatology paper titled Prospective Evaluation of the Prevalence of Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease and Steatohepatitis in a Large Middle-Aged U.S. Cohort. In this conversation, the surfers take a deeper dive into study findings, identifying subgroups with as high as a 70% study prevalence of NAFLD and a 30-plus percent prevalence of NASH. With a sample of 664 patients, this is the largest prospective histological study of patients with known lone liver disease existing today. The subgroup members discussed in this conversation point to acute unaddressed needs that already are having a profound effect on population health. So, prepare to have your eyes open and your mind stretched. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Every week, a global community of fatty liver disease stakeholders comes together to explore the most important challenges in diagnosing, treating, and developing medications for patients with fatty liver diseases. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guests, hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders Dr. Naeem Alkuri and Dr. Samar Goria. As they discuss the article, our three key opinion leaders authored recently on prevalence of NAFLD and NASH in an asymptomatic middle-aged U.S. population this week on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Now, I, I have to caveat this a minute. So I went back and pulled up the paper we published in 2011. Chris Williams was a fellow of mine at the time. He was the first author on that paper. The prevalence in that cohort, there were 328 patients, and that study was done from January 2007 to March 2010. 328 patients enrolled. The prevalence of NASH, again, by biopsy at that point was 12.2%. The prevalence of F2 to F3 disease was 2.7%. Fast forward now, 8 to 10 years to the current study we're talking about today, NASH prevalence 14%. So it's gone from 12.2 to 14. Same population of patients, exactly the same. I mean, same center, same colon cancer screening group. But maybe the more alarming feature is the rise in the moderate to advanced fibrotic patient group. So those with F2 or F3, 2.7% in the first paper, 58 5.9% in the second paper. So a huge increase in those patients diagnosed with underlying F2 or F3 disease. So yeah, a little bit of an increase in overall prevalence, but more of a disparate increase, if you will, in those with NASH and what I call at-risk NASH, those with NASH with at least F2 disease. That's a striking finding. The other thing I would say that's interesting from the trial is we had 130 African-Americans in the study. So I would challenge somebody to go look in the literature on the prevalence and severity of NASH amongst African-Americans. You won't find a cohort with 130 African-Americans, at least to my knowledge, that's been published. And then add in the fact that it was prospective. And what we found there is what has been previously noted. So it's really just a, a foot stomp of, of what's been presented before, but with prospectively obtained data in a decent-sized number of patients. And the prevalence of NASH is 5%. Uh, that's just exceedingly low relative to Hispanics, Caucasians, and Asians. So, you know, there were some some good data points gleaned from that population as well. So, Roger, Louise, what, what do you guys think? I thought it was a, a, an excellent study, and I thought um, some of the figures are actually really quite impressive there. Particularly, you've all commented on the fact that there were no cirrhotic patients found. So, I think the opportunity for me to turn around and look at their health now going 
going forward as to what did you put in to try and help these guys not become cirrhotic? Was there more dietetics? Was there more information? Was it used as an ongoing step to look after their liver health to prevent? Because that's a good cohort. It's a very good size. And if you can prevent all of those people becoming cirrhotic, that's for me is the wellness aspect. Somebody gets an opportunity to turn that round. Did that get done afterwards or were they just, were they sent back to their primary care physicians? Obviously, the results were communicated with the patient and those that had at-risk NASH were counseled on lifestyle modification and then also the consideration to participate in clinical trials. And then those that had less disease severity were again counseled on lifestyle modification. As far as follow-up, there was no specific protocol extension to follow these people prospectively. Having said that, there was a sister study done in these patients where those patients that went to liver biopsy also went on to have coronary calcium CT scans done as well as full echocardiograms. And I believe there is a cohort of those patients that are being followed prospectively. In addition, we are in the middle of going back and trying to get a protocol in place to evaluate the electronic medical record of the 664 patients that underwent MRIs to see, you know, over time if the MRI or if there's any clinical data that could predict outcomes. So as I was mentioning, the trial started in, in 2015, actually in August of 2015. So now it's May of 2021. There is some patients that, that are now almost six years into uh, or six years since they had their original scan. So it would be interesting now to go back and see if the baseline multiparametric CT1 score, the baseline MR elastography score, baseline ALT, AST, PDFF, diabetics, non-diabetics, if any of that could predict outcomes, whether they be cardiovascular, hepatic, or otherwise, cancer, kidney disease, any, any of those sorts of things. So that's currently in the works. We're going to see if we can get that done this year and hopefully report that data in short order. Fantastic. The other thing I noted was you commented on the Hispanic population. And I know that the numbers in the Native American, Alaskan, Native Hawaiian, and the Pacific Islanders was quite small, but they too showed what we expect a very high in I think it was 25 and 22%. And obviously, I follow Aboriginal health and South Pacific Islanders from my Australian side a little bit. And it is a worrying level of liver disease or potential, even with small numbers. And where that takes us in places like some of these islands and Native Americans and Alaskans into managing and screening those populations. So, Louise, you've educated me over time to take a look at American Hispanic numbers as kind of a marker for what those numbers might be. Not that the populations are identical, but they have similar traits. So I wasn't surprised when I saw those numbers for that portion of the cohort. It makes complete sense that, that, that no matter where in the world you go, if you've got populations at certain levels of economic status who eat certain kinds of diets, they're likely to have repeater problems unless there's something really unique in the genes in the gene pool. So I thought of you immediately and looked at that. And then I said, well, gee, that's kind of what I would have expected. You got it, uh, Roger. I totally agree. Uh, in addition to cultural and dietary differences, 
differences between different subgroups. You know, the genetic differences had been well studied in these different ethnic and racial groups. So Hispanics are known to have higher prevalence of the risk variant of the most powerful genetic influencer in NAFLD and liver disease, the gene PMPLA3. So Hispanics have the highest frequency of the uh, risk variant. And African Americans actually have the lowest prevalence of that variant, whereas Asians and whites have frequency of that risk variant in the middle. So our data support what we already know about the frequency distribution of the risk variant for the PMPLA3. Another important finding of the study I thought was that the majority of patients, 74% of the patients, actually had normal ALT. This is a test that is commonly used in primary care and even GI practices to say, well, this patient has significant NAFLD or not. Now, we and others have reported that ALT level offers false reassurance. It really has poor sensitivity for detecting clinically significant NAFLD or fibrosing NASH. And that was the case in this study too. 74% of the cohort had normal ALT. Now, how does that factor in within the clinical management? I think what Steven and Naeem highlighted is that, you know, we really have to take a different approach to risk assessment and stratification in the clinic. And maybe the new guidelines will help also advance this, this thought that with the availability of non-invasive testing, maybe we should look more thoroughly using these more useful methods than ALT for identifying who is really at risk NASH, who would require early intervention. Now, the approach followed in the study using state-of-the-art imaging, predetermined cutoffs as to who to offer a biopsy to, yielded another important finding. Now, when you find NASH in these patients, the vast majority, 80 to 85%, actually have what we call NAFLD activity score of four or more. These are the patients that you actually prioritize for treatment to prevent progression of NASH. So that was another important finding that when you follow up on this protocol, you biopsy patients at risk, you find high prevalence NASH. It is the NASH that requires intervention. And this is a prime time for that because there is whole slow activity in the field to find therapeutic agents that would hold or improve NASH. When you did the study with the excluded groups, which are the usual suspects, alcohol, those on methotrexate and any of the, the medication, did you consider to include them all and then subcategorize them in the groups? Because the real world population may well be on methotrexate and tamoxifen. They may well drink more than 21 units. So by selecting purely the NAFLD, and I completely understand why you guys did that, but actually looking at a real world population and bringing it down to the pure NAFLD population, because I can just imagine how many were in that population of methotrexate guys who would have had significant liver fat and maybe more significant fibrosis to have that opportunity to learn. Yeah, we thought about that early on when we were designing the trial. But I think at the end of the day, we wanted to keep it as pure as we could relative to new diagnoses of NASH to really get at the true prevalence of this disease in our patient population. And also, we were a little bit resource constrained, Louise, as far as coordinator support and resources to do the trial. While it is a tertiary care center where tons of research is being conducted, the primary mission of Brook Army Medical Center is to take care of our wounded warriors and our retiree population. And so the MRI scanners, for instance, are there for clinical care. And so we can't 
use all the scan time for research. So it was a little bit of a give and take with the IRB as far as what we were going to be allowed to do and what the radiologists were going to allow us to do and how much of their time they would spend reading the data. We also had to send the multiparametric MRIs to Perspectum in Oxford, and there was a cost associated. Well, it wasn't a cost because they performed those scans in kind, but there was a limit to the number of scans we could send them. You know, ultimately, we also received support from EchoSense to help do the study and, and the analysis, and they were very, very helpful. But again, there was some limits around what that would look like. So we wanted to be as focused as we could to get as much data as we could from a representative NAFLD population. One thing we were able to do that we didn't do in the first study published in Gastro in 2011 is in the first trial, we didn't get any blood work on the quote unquote normals. This time we did so that we would have a comparison of normal to abnormal, which I thought was very helpful. In fact, I think that that made the paper even that much better. One thing we we haven't talked about, and this is the topic of a forthcoming paper from the same data set, is what happened with all the non-invasives, you know, the, the multi-parametric MRI, the CT1, the FibroScan, the CAP. How did all that correlate with histopathology, with fibrosis? And we didn't have enough space to write about all that in this initial publication, but I can tell you that's a publication that we're anxious to get out, and it'll be a, a companion a paper to this one. And one, one point I want to make also is the fact that we diagnosed NAFLD in 244 patients based on the MRI PDFF being more than 5%, but not every patient agreed to a liver biopsy. So we only had biopsies in 192, 52 patients declined. And the same rate of NASH that we're diagnosing in patients with NAFLD, I think the overall prevalence of NASH in the population would have been higher had we had biopsies on everyone. So we diagnosed NASH only in patients that agreed to the biopsy. I think we would be probably more like in the 17, 18% range had we biopsied every patient in the study. So I think this is very alarming. And, you know, you're seeing rates of NASH maybe three times higher than previously reported. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back on Wednesday, May 19th, to discuss escalation and de-escalation of NASH therapy at different points in disease progression and management. I hope you'll join us then. Our guests will be Dr. Mazen Nuruddin, and Stephen and Louise will be with me as well. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.